Yeah, this whole culture of, you know, fail fast. I think there's some element of wisdom in there, but if you just become obsessed with failing fast to the point where failing becomes the objective of what you're doing, yeah. well, then why are you in business? <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, and I think, I think that's another thing that, um, that venture capital culture creates in us, right? So you have, you have this large amount of money. My name is Sonia Simone from copyblogger.com, and you're listening to my friend Ash Roy on ProductiveInsights.com. Welcome to the Productive Insights Podcast, where you can learn how to systemize, automate, and scale your business via the internet. To access previous episodes and useful productivity tips, go to www.ProductiveInsights.com. Now, here's your host, Ash Roy. Hello and welcome back to the Productive Insights Podcast. This is episode 159 and today we have a great guest who I've featured twice on the Productive Insights Podcast before and that's Rand Fishkin. In this episode, Rand reveals some of the little known truths about the startup culture in Silicon Valley and why venture capital and external funding are not necessarily the best way to fund your business. External funding does work in some situations, but not all of them. And Rand shares some of his insights from having built his business, Mars.com, to $45 million annually. And he shares his lessons he's learned along the way. As always, Rand shares his insights with great honesty and candor. And this is one of the things I love about interviewing Rand. This episode is brought to you by the Premium Productivity Course, which helps you focus on the things that really grow your business or your career and enables you to build the lifestyle that you deserve while still generating an excellent income. Head over to premiumproductivity.com to find out more. Now, without further ado, here's Rand. Welcome, everybody. Today's guest is Rand Fishkin, who's been on our podcast twice already in episodes 38 and 126. He's the founder of Moz.com and he's recently launched a new venture, SparkToro.com. Rand talks about his journey with great openness and honesty, and that's something I really love about him, which is why I love having him on the show. Today, he's here to share his learnings from Silicon Valley, and he talks about all these insights and learnings in his new book, Lost and Founder, which I think is an awesome title, by the way. So I'm delighted to welcome back Rand Fishkin from SparkToro.com. Welcome, Rand. Ash, thank you so much for having me. Good to be here. Great to have you on the show, man. Um, so, Rand, you wrote a wonderful article recently called My Last Day at Moz and My First Day at SparkToro. And as I said before, I thought it was very honest and vulnerable, and I really liked those five tidbits of advice you shared at the end. So could you share some of your insights from that article and also what you've learned and documented in your book, Lost and Founder? and how that can be relevant to our listeners today. Yeah, I think, you know, the big goal with Lost and Founder was to replicate an experience that I have quite often, but that is not scalable. And that is, you know, Ash, let's say you and I get together in a city, we're at a conference together, and we go and have a coffee, and we talk about what it's like being an entrepreneur, what it's like to build a business, the pitfalls, the mistakes, the things we wish we had done differently, the things we've learned from those mistakes. Yeah. That, that coffee or that beer or that glass of wine or that dinner 
is an awesome, awesome exchange of ideas. And, and it makes the journey so much better because you don't feel alone. You feel like you know someone who has been through some of these steps before and has seen the potential problems and challenges. And I felt frustrated that I couldn't share that experience with thousands or tens of thousands of entrepreneurs who need it. Yeah. Right. So I kind of wrote this book. I almost wrote this book for myself 20 years ago. Right. Right. What would I, what would I hand to Rand just as he was dropping out of college and starting to work uh, on this, on this new business venture? What are all the lessons I wish I could have told myself? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a lot of books, they can be summed up in, you know, a Wikipedia article, or you yeah. can watch the 10 minute TED talk, right? And you, you get the, the whole idea of it. And Lost and Founder doesn't work like that. It's a, it's a series of, you know, 18, 19 different chapters uh, that each tell an individual set of stories around a broader lesson. Um, right. So things like, you know, the MVP process, building a minimum viable product can be really smart, but releasing MVPs has never worked well for me. Okay. Like making those public, that, that is a process that's, that's failed for me. Um, raising venture capital is something that can be very exciting and really interesting for the right type of business, but it's wrong for 99% of businesses, Right. even though it's marketed to all of us. Yes. Um, yeah. So lots, lots of lessons like this. There's just something I want to mention about venture capital. And, you know, I have a background in banking and I've, must say I've never accepted venture capital. In fact, I've always preferred to work solo in my business. And I think that when you bring in venture capital or any form of funding, whether it's debt funding or equity funding, more so debt funding, you have other people telling you how to call the shots. And that's okay if they really understand your business and they have your best at heart. But if those two things are not present, then there's a high likelihood that they will want short-term returns, they will not be interested in the long-term benefits of your business, and it will very quickly fall away from your vision that you set out with when you were the starter. So I think there's a lot to be said for sweat equity yeah, yeah. over funding. Yeah, I... Let's see, I agree with some elements of that and disagree with some others. So I think one thing yes. that's happened over the, past, uh, over the past 10 years that's been really exciting for entrepreneurs is these new forms of funding, right? right? So it used to be, um, you know, when, when I dropped out of school, there was basically, there was venture capital, yeah. there was debt, there was not a lot else, yes. right? Those, those were essentially your forms of capital. Now, or, or bootstrapping, right? Now... A, bootstrapping is a lot easier, right? It's much more inexpensive to start a new business. You're not buying servers. You can go to Amazon Web Services. They'll give you, you know, $50,000 worth of credit to get your new startup up and running. And so uh, there's a lot more options around that. There's also way more options in the crowdfunding world. Yes. Right? If you look at stuff like um, um, Kickstarter, right. and Indiegogo, and, and all these types of platforms where if you have something exciting and you have an audience that wants it, you can potentially raise a lot of money from people who don't need, they're not buying equity, they're not buying debt, they're buying a, I want your product as soon as it's available. Right. I love that model. I think that's, that's wonderful, right? It's beautiful. Yeah. You're customer funded. Um, and it's a great marketing channel too. 
There's also angel investors who become more and more flexible in the kinds of investments that they're willing to make. And if you can find angels who are aligned with you know, your vision, for example, so for SparkToro, I'm not doing institutional money. Uh, I am doing angel money. And you know, I found investors who are aligned with the things that, oh, that matter to me and you know, that, that make sense for us long term. Uh, and it would be tough for me to sort of bootstrap the business entirely. Not, not to say it's impossible, but it would go much slower. Exactly. Right? That's, that is absolutely true. That's the benefit of having funding. You can really accelerate things. Right, right. I, I think that the, the challenge becomes, you know, with venture capital, which is the model that's sort of uh, overly marketed to every entrepreneur, right? It's seen as somehow the pinnacle of yes. entrepreneurial achievement in the tech world, when, when really it shouldn't be. There's no. no, there's no reason for that. It doesn't, uh, while it is well correlated with businesses that IPO, it is poorly correlated with businesses that survive. Yes. So I did... I, I did a little bit of research for for um, for my book for Lost and Founder, and Ash, what I saw is uh, this is stats for the United States, but I assume it applies pretty much everywhere. Yeah. Which is, uh, uh, let's say you and I started a consulting business, yeah. services business. The five year survival rate uh, is a little bit over fifty percent. So, you know, if you take ten thousand businesses that are in the services realm, consulting realm. After five years, a little more than half of them are still alive. That's pretty reasonable. I'm actually surprised at how high it is. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty darn good, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, now let's take a venture-backed tech company. Yeah. Well, what are the survival rates? I think they are under 10%. Wow. Right? So, so you have gone from we are more likely than not to still be alive in five years to uh, nine out of 10 of us have died. Right. That's... <laughs> That's terrible, terrible odds. Absolutely. And, uh, and I, I'm not sure that that's communicated. I think the other thing that's crazy is how many venture-backed businesses are a worse payoff for their employees and their founders uh, than other models. Right. That is really not discussed, right? So venture capital makes good sense for certain types of investors, but it makes poor sense for almost everyone, even many of those who do survive and, and do well uh, on the founder and employee side. And I have a whole chapter about that, you know, as well in the book, kind of looking at the math of why is it that, you know, venture capital firms invest in this way? So I really feel like entrepreneurs need to understand how VCs work and operate in a, yeah. in a way that's not well amplified and understood today yes. uh, before they take that money. I get the impression that a lot of entrepreneurs in the Silicon Valley culture feel like they've you know, hit the pinnacle of success when they get the funding. But to me, that's just the beginning. You've just received the funding. Now you've got to build your business and you've got to make it work. So, I mean, I would go even further, right? I would say I, I ran into a friend of mine who, uh, who raised his first round of capital um, just a few days ago at a, at a conference. And... Uh, you know, I said, um, you know, Matt said, hey, I, you know, we raised, we raised our first round. And my, my response was, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> right? Because, I relate because to you've, that. Just taken, you've just taken your survival odds from <laughs> quite good to really terrible. And you've right? also and taken your decision-making capacity pretty much, you know, 
out of the equation. There's only there's only two paths that are in front of you. One, you return five to ten times your investor's capital within three to seven years. Yep. Or two, you get fired and your company is, you know, not your own or disappears entirely. Um, right. So th- those are your two options. And that that doesn't leave a lot of room in the middle for, gosh, you know, we have a beautiful business that uh, kicks off millions of dollars a year, millions of dollars a year in profit. Mm-hmm. Not acceptable, right? That model does not work. That is uh, uh, not workable. So good example of this, um, Moz itself, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you, know, you know, probably do a little over $50 million this year. Uh, it's profitable, you know, probably kick between five and 10% of that off in cash and add to its balance sheet. Sounds pretty good. I mean, that sounds yeah. like a good business to me. Um, yeah. Gross margins are super high, right? Like 79, 80%. Um, growth is not great, but it's all right. It's around 10% year over year. Uh, and to an entrepreneur, that is a massive success. Oh, yeah. Such a success. Just blowing it out of the water, doing incredibly well. To a venture capitalist, that is a frustrating uh, business that probably you shouldn't have invested in. So what's a success to a venture capitalist in that scenario? Well, so what they're trying to do, right, is they're trying to make uh, 10, you know, 10 investments, hmm. have two of those investments return somewhere between five and 30 times the amount that they put in. Right. Have maybe a couple others return three to five the amount and have another seven investments out of that 10 die completely so that they don't have to invest any time or energy in them and can right. go look for other new ones. So it's really frustrating for a venture capitalist when you have a sort of stuck-in-the-middle business. Yeah, like it's not about, right, right. You have to keep putting energy into it, but it's not returning enough to make sense for your fund, and your LPs are not going to be happy with that return. So it's just, you know, it's almost a waste, right? You know, it doesn't match the model. That smacks so much of the whole investment banking scenario, which I've got a bit of a chip on my shoulder about as well. It's so short-term focused and it so fundamentally goes against the idea of what we studied was the going concern principle. Why do businesses exist? They exist to provide some kind of a product or solution to a customer to solve a problem and to deliver some kind of a meaningful transformation presumably on an ongoing basis. And if they do so, they get rewarded for it and it happens incrementally. But then you have this whole greed element that comes in where it's like, I want more, more, more now, now, now. And I want to kill stuff that doesn't give me amazing results. And it's like you're killing these fledglings that could really end up being a beautiful, meaningful business that adds value to the economy and to the world. Yeah. And I think, you know, venture is almost, it's sort of a a different type of um, challenge in that it's not, it's not super short-term focused, right? These, these VCs are happy to pour tens or hundreds of millions of dollars into businesses that they think can be, you know, very big, exciting things in in years to come, even if there's not a, a big opportunity or it's hard to see right now. Yeah. So it is, it is good that they exist. And I think for the right kinds of companies, you know, entrepreneurs who are willing to take extreme risk, yes, right? Basically say, look, I, I know that nine out of 10 times I'm going to fail, but I'm willing to give it a shot for the one out of 10 that might work. Right. Um, 
And also, I'm willing to take all this money and invest it and put it to work to find quick growth, uh, you know, rapid growth over the years to come. Yeah. And, I, you know, I accept that, um, that challenge. And I understand that if things go well, but not incredibly well, right? If I turn yes. out to be a really good company, but not a rocket ship to IPO or, yeah. you know, to fast exit, I recognize that I might get fired from my own business or I might not make any money from it. And I accept that risk as well. So it's a, you know, it's a funny kind of risk model that, that people who go into it um, don't quite understand. And I think, you know, broadening the sphere and saying to entrepreneurs, look, there's, there's micro VCs, there's accelerators, there's crowdfunding, there's yeah. angels, you know, customer funding, there's all these different opportunities. Maybe don't, let's not amplify VC as the, the, the one and only. The holy grail, yeah. So hopefully yeah. this episode will go a long way towards, you know, uh, dispelling those myths. But <laughs> uh, Fingers crossed, fingers crossed. <laughs> so what kinds of businesses do work well with VCs? Well, look, if you're building a rocket ship, right? So, you know, literally and figuratively, if you have, so for example, a friend of mine is um, building a business where he wants to replace a lot of the most dangerous work in the construction industry. Yeah. Um, like with robots that like, you know, scurry up iron girders and start building things out. Oh, amazing idea, right? Incredible. Yeah. Going to take an, an insane amount of funding. Yeah to do and do right has high odds of failure, but if it could succeed, you know, be great. So perfect, great model, yeah. right? Makes, makes total sense. Right. Um, I think that, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the most successful companies that have uh, raised venture, it made some reasonable sense. You know, uh, uh, Google was a business that needed, you know, tens and hundreds of millions of dollars to make a great search engine before it could have revenue. Okay. Makes sense. You know, that's, uh, that's a model that works for that. Um, but yeah, then there's a lot of other businesses where you say, gosh, you know, I think we can get profitable. Maybe that, maybe that makes less sense. Yeah. Okay. All right. So I'm just going to pull out a little bit of a uh, description from your book summary in Amazon, which really had me fascinated. <laughs> so it says, everyone knows how a startup story is supposed to go. A young, brilliant entrepreneur has a cool idea drops out of college, defies the doubters, overcomes all odds, makes billions, and becomes the envy of the technology world. This is not that story. So that, I love that. And that really, I'm sure, has most of us chomping at the bit. So can you tell us more about this story that you've shared? You've touched on it already, but can you give us a bit more insight? Sure, sure. Yeah. So, I mean, basically, my, my thesis is that there is a tremendous amount that entrepreneurs can learn from businesses that are not Facebook uh, and Google, yeah. right? And 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 folks like, and Airbnb and Uber. That essentially most of us, most of us are going to build and attempt to build businesses that have ongoing value, that are useful for their customers, but that are not, you know, media darlings and worth billions of dollars. Just statistically speaking, that's ninety nine percent of us, right? But unfortunately, the, the media and tech culture uh, and popular culture in general reveres only these sort of giants of industry. Mm. And thus, we hear from the 1% of the most successful what they've done. And I think there's survivorship bias 
uh, and, a num- and a number of other kinds of bias that creep into those that make a lot of the lessons that you might be able to learn from, say, you know, interviewing a Mark Zuckerberg, uh, not very applicable to what you're doing. Right. Right. So we, you know, we idealize and idolize these people. We amplify everything that they say. Yeah. But I'm not actually sure that, you know, if you're in your basement and you're building your first company and, you know, you're doing consulting and you want to try and figure out how you might pivot to offer a product. I'm sorry, the Facebook story is just not helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, and that's that's the hope with this is that by telling this story of Moz, which has Lots of ups and downs, lots yeah. of rocky beginnings and, and challenges, but that eventually produced something that was interesting and, and relatively exciting, at least for most entrepreneurs. Uh, you can get more value from that. You know, Moz was initially a services business. It was a consulting firm. Right. And, it, and it pivoted to product, right? It yeah. was initially self-funded and then debt-funded. And then it raised venture capital. Mm-hmm. Uh, it started with two employees, me and my mom. Geraldine. Right? So, you know, it's a family business that then became, you know, much something much bigger. And I, I think that that is hopefully a format that many more people can identify with and say, wow, this, these types of stories, this problem that they face, this is actually relevant to something that I'm doing and a challenge that I'm facing. Uh, and so that's the goal behind telling this story. Right. There's a podcast that Seth Godin has recently launched called Akimbo, and I think maybe it was episode two. He talks about when he was sitting at this table with a bunch of startup founders, and there was a guy called Sergey in that group. Sergey was talking about this little search engine that they had, and they were just focusing on delivering a good experience. Then there's the conversation I had with Noah Kagan, the founder of AppSumo, and he talked about Zuckerberg was only interested in one thing, and that was increasing user experience or user interaction with Facebook. So even those businesses, you could argue, did have a fairly singular focus and a fairly organic incremental focus at the start, couldn't you? Yeah, I think in some ways, although those stories, I think occasionally minimize the contributions of other areas, Okay. right? So Facebook is a really good example of this. You know, so yes, Mark will say, hey, we were just solely focused on the user experience, which is a dirty lie. That's complete BS. Uh, You know, early Facebook had a targeted group that was all about marketing. And their marketing strategy was, we're going to go to college campuses, right? And and, and scrape college directories. And we're going to email uh, people who are in the Greek system, right, fraternities and sororities, and invite them with an exclusive offer to the Facebook um, and start to get them on board because we believe those people will help get the rest of the school on board. And then we'll slowly go across the country college by college with our marketing effort, email marketing effort, which violated can spam, right? The totally broke the laws of can spam and the the TOS there. Um, And uh, also... Um, had was I think the seventh or eighth different marketing tactic that they tried to get people right. on board with with Facebook. So when you say user experience, that that's just uh, wishful <laughs> mythology. Right? Okay, um, and I think exploring more deeply, getting true transparency about how a lot of these businesses managed to 
you know, get traction, manage to make their marketing efforts work, manage to acquire customers, as well as build product. That's really interesting too. Facebook's also an interesting story because they'll talk a lot about user experience, but what they won't talk about is how they uh, monetized it. And lately, obviously, they've been getting a ton of attention for how they monetize the data <laughs> that, they, that they have from everyone. Yeah. You know, and those kinds of things. And it's not, you know, it's not particularly rational, I think, for most bootstrapped entrepreneurs or debt-backed entrepreneurs or yeah. angel-backed entrepreneurs to think, right, I'll just raise a $200 million venture round and then I won't have to worry about, you know, all these other things I can just focus on. How do I get people more addicted to my product? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have to say, I have to confess that I, it does leave me feeling a little bit deflated in the sense that, you know, even Apple, when they started, they're a company that I like and I like their values and so on, but, you know, they rip stuff off from Xerox. And, and I mean, that this is openly admitted by Steve Jobs yeah. in his conversations, but they, I, I guess to some degree, every company started with some murky beginnings but does it have to be that way can you just have a squeaky clean business that starts and then becomes a really big business one day yeah i think absolutely i um it might be more challenging to find good examples but google is not a terrible example of this i think early google was a very um idealistic kind of place in yeah. a lot of ways which is not to say they didn't have their faults but a lot of the marketing that google did was essentially hey Let's serve tech-savvy people in the U.S. really, really well. Let's be their primary search engine. Let's sort of attract them because we know that they will go back to their, you know, family and friends and they'll make Google the yeah. homepage of, you know, all these web browsers. This is back in the early 2000s, right, when the homepage of a web browser was the most important thing. That was how Yahoo became yeah. such a leader at the time because its homepage was so many people's homepage. Uh, and and by appealing to them, we sort of get to everyone else. And they did focus heavily on user experience and on spam and search quality. Um, they were very idealistic about their, uh, you know, do no evil and how they monetized. Uh, they were really thoughtful about how they did AdWords and AdSense and those kinds mm -hmm. of things. So I give them a lot of credit, uh, especially in those early years. I think, you know, since then, once you become a public company, it's a little different. But um, your agenda changes. Uh, yeah, your agenda changes, right? And um, and there's there's a lot of operators out there who are ethically minded and want to do things uh, the right way, and they you know they consider um, these sort of sketchier tactics to be either off limits or potentially dangerous, which I think a lot of them are. I, I'm not sure, you know, the extent to which for every ten businesses that try something sketchy, like maybe Facebook did a little bit. Um, do nine of them get tossed out because people are, you know, skeeved out or they have illegal activity or investors yeah. won't put money into them because of that? You know, I, I, I can see some of that. There's a lot to say about a culture of a business as well, because it's even reflected in today's world where Google hasn't been, hasn't been scrutinized about scandals as much. As Facebook, I mean, to right now is, yeah. is a yeah. good example. I, yeah, I think the, uh, was it The Guardian today had a great article about how, you know, if you think Facebook has a lot of data about you, just look at what Google has. And Google, of course, makes that publicly available. You can go to, yeah. you know, your data page on, on Google and see everything they've collected. And it is, I think, 
disturbing and scary, but Google's very open about it. And yes. Has control. And yes. It, it feels different because I think Google's um, monetization of personal data feels less um, intrinsically conflict heavy than yes. Facebook's does. That's a good choice of words, actually. Yes. And, you know, Google's brand personality as a result is inspires more trust and a higher level of safety and comfort in me as compared to Facebook. I don't know what they're going to do with my info. I don't even know how much of my info they have. Whereas with Google, I don't know, they just feel uh, safer. Yeah. What's interesting is, you know, Microsoft has an incredible, we're recording this on Skype right now. Microsoft has an incredible amount of data, but they choose not to make that the primary monetization system yeah. for their business. And so it's a you know, different story, right? We feel differently about Microsoft. Like, oh, well, maybe they did some anti-competitive stuff in the late 90s on yeah. the enterprise business side. But today, that seems like a drop in the bucket compared to what right. a lot of other companies do. We've talked quite a bit about the whole, the external funding. And we were going to talk a bit about how, you know, that little excerpt I read out earlier was not your story and we got a bit sidetracked. So let's bring the conversation back a bit more to Lost and Founder. And what is the story that you share or the stories that you share in Lost and Founder? Yeah, so as I mentioned, right, it's really a, um, each of the narratives that's told is in service to a particular lesson learned and a myth that I'm trying to bust. So, we, you know, we talked early on about how MVPs didn't work well for us, right? And that, yeah. that we kind of biased to releasing exceptional products rather than minimally viable products. Yes. Um, there's another chapter that talks about uh, why, why the pivot, which is a very you know, strong meme in the uh, Silicon Valley startup world, may in fact bias founders to think more about execution than idea. Okay. And that's not necessarily healthy. Right. right. That in fact, the idea that you choose for your company is a huge part of the potential success because of how the mechanics of execution work over time. That is to say, execution starts out not so great. And then over time, it gets really good. Yeah. Right. So we're improving execution. Ideas are much harder to improve upon. Right. If the yeah. fundamental customer that you're serving if the business model that you have, if the way that you're selling and monetizing, whatever it is that you're doing, those things are very challenging to pivot on without changing the whole business and having to go out and find totally new customers and change up your product as opposed to improving execution. So, you know, I got my advice is to guide founders to spending a considerable amount of time validating that idea yeah. rather than just saying, hey, we have to get started. Execution is everything. Ideas are worthless. Yeah, this whole culture of, you know, fail fast. I think there's some element of wisdom in there, but if you just become obsessed with failing fast to the point where failing becomes the objective of what you're doing, yeah. well, then why are you in business? <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, and I think, I think that's another thing that, um, that venture capital culture creates in us right so you have you have this large amount of money that you can use to grow your business so it really does become about like failing fast with incremental sums of it until you find the one where you can apply those dollars and grow the model right. 
But you don't have to fail fast. And, and the yeah. whole idea of failing fast can then become a crutch in the sense and it can lead to creating crappy ideas because you'll go, well, I don't have to come up with a good idea. I don't have to come up with a good solution because I can just fail at it. And I've got to fail at 55 before I can have a successful business. But no, you don't. No, no, you really don't. Yeah, you can. I think there are easier ways to validate. I walked through some of those in the book, right? But easier ways to validate whether something is a true pain point, whether you can uh, you know, make money off of solving that pain point and, and putting that effort towards that as opposed to you know, believing that execution is everything and ideas don't matter, I think is a really wise way to go. See, so, I yeah, really like that. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah. I mean, a number of other myths, right, that I try and tackle. One is that uh, management should be the only way up for employees. I think this is true in far too many organizations that if you want to advance, you know, make more money, have more influence, have more of a say, you have to become a people manager. And that's that's pretty foolish, right? They're they're there should be, and, and we established, and I think um, did a decent job with, you know, there should be a track for individual contributors to advance their, their careers, their contributions, uh, their influence, and their salaries and, and um, compensation. Yeah. And that does not need to be tied to you have people reporting to you. So you mean um, as a technical specialist, they can advance as a technician? You, right. And, and I think that a few companies do this with very technical people only, software engineers, for example. Right. But they don't apply this to customer service folks or oh, marketers okay. or operations people or folks in finance or, you know, all these other roles that are critical to a company. And that's foolish. Okay. If it's, if it's the right thing to do for your software engineers, it's also the right thing to do uh, for your, you know, operations folks, for your help team, for right. your designers, for your marketers, et cetera. So, yeah, talking about that kind of stuff, uh, there's another chapter that deals with why, um, why teams that don't feel comfortable being vulnerable at work perform poorly, right? How essentially one of the oddities of human beings is that we're, when we're in a team environment, uh, the, the top performing teams observed through many, many kinds of research uh, are not those that have the, the best individuals on them from an individual skill set right. uh, perspective, but rather tend to be those where the people feel the most comfortable working together. They trust one another. They're willing to share personal yeah. aspects of their lives. They're, they're willing, like you and I might be, right? I'm willing to talk about um, my depression with you. I'll, I'll tell you about you know, how my personal relationships are going. I'll, I'll tell you about, you know, my wife and I's conversation about whether to have kids or not. Yeah. And that vulnerability ties us together in a way that makes somehow, weirdly, makes the output of our work way, way better. Way better than people who are more skilled than us, who perform better on tests than us. And it's not just me saying this, right? Google did this massive multi-year experiment around this, yeah. trying to identify these factors that uh, resulted in great products and great performance. And they, they found that vulnerability and psychological safety was the biggest factor yeah. correlated with success among their teams, which is kind of mind-blowing. Yeah. And totally, totally contradicts how Silicon Valley tech culture thinks about what good is. Right. Right. I mean, Everything I read on Hacker News is 10x engineers, hire 10x engineers, everything else will sort itself out. 
Yeah. Come on, man. That's that's clearly wrong. That's a that's very um, financially biased, and as humans, we are not just financial creatures. We have a lot yeah. more, yeah. several more elements to us. I can't remember where I read this. Maybe it was when I did my MBA. I can't remember, but I remember reading something about what strengthens a team is not just the relationship between the leader of the team and the team members, but the, the relationship between the team members themselves. And in my team, I have, I, I really encourage my team to be kind and helpful to each other and develop a sense of, a sense of family, a sense of collegiateness. And I do yeah. think that dramatically improves the results of the whole much more than the sum of the parts. It, it, it's uh, borne out by years and years of research. So I think you're absolutely right. Okay, so could you talk about the biggest challenges that you've seen people have when it comes to actually implementing these nuggets of wisdom you've been sharing with us, uh, particularly in the face of a Silicon Valley culture which is screaming, you know, fail fast and, you know, get more external funding and... Uh, just 10x and 100x and all that sort of stuff. And there's yeah, yeah. an unfairly weak emphasis on building something organically, solving a problem, and using what I like to think of as a Seth Godin approach, you know, the, the more incremental, the more organic approach. Yeah, I think one of the biggest challenges is exposure bias, right? And I, I think that's called also called availability heuristic bias, which is essentially that the things that are talked about, um, especially in, in media and from our you know, groups of um, friends and social circles and professional circles, are the things that we gravitate towards. Yes. It's, and it can be very difficult to get escape velocity on those ideas and concepts and think of different ways, be willing to go against the grain and be contrarian on some of those ideas when they're amplified and repeated so often. Yes. So that that is absolutely one of those challenges. Another one, though, is getting other people on board, right? So as a, as a founder, I think you're, you're fighting against um, prevailing you know, wisdom and, and against the current when you try and implement these things in your company, when you say, I am not thinking about venture capital, even though I'm a tech business, even though I'm in software, even yes. though I'm producing product, right? Even though I'm trying to build something scalable. Uh, why would you not do that? That's, right. how, that's how crazy What's wrong someone, with you? Right? <laughs> What's wrong with you? Um, and so I think that that can be an additional challenge. And founders need to find people who match their beliefs and share their ideals and goals. Um, not necessarily their you know, their backgrounds um, or their, um, you know, particular uh, um, product vision or that kind of stuff, but have a, but share the vision of, yes, this is the kind of thing we want to build. This is what we agree is a good business versus a bad one yeah. and a healthy way to build it versus a not healthy way. Um, getting those people onto your ship or, you know, if you're a venture backed company, go the other way, get those people onto your ship because you, you want that fundamental agreement about here's where we're going and here's why and here's what matters. Um, I think that, that getting those shared perspectives makes a world of difference too. And then the third thing I would say about that is repeating that message 
uh, over and over and, and truly sticking to it, right? So creating your, you know, your values and your culture yeah. um, and then being willing to make the hard decisions, especially when it comes into conflict with, you know, making more money or growing faster um, or this, you know, this offer you've received, that is when your team is going to look at you and say, okay, does she really believe this? Does he really believe this? Or was that just lip service? And now I'm going to find out, oh no, what's re what really matters is growth or money or you yeah. know, status, or whatever it is. I'm sure you've covered these principles in more detail in your book. So when does the book come out and how can we get our hands on it? <laughs> sure. It's April 24th, I believe is the launch date. And yeah. right now it's available on you know, all the online uh, booksellers. So, you know, Indie Books or Barnes & Noble or Amazon or take your pick. Yeah. So it's available for pre-order, is that right? That's right. Yeah. So and that's uh, the, the Kindle version, the audio version and the uh, print version all, all coming out uh, April 24th. Okay, awesome. Well, I'm really looking forward to reading it. And uh, you've been kind enough to arrange for a hard copy to be sent to me. And I really appreciate that. So thank you very much. We'll definitely link to oh, thanks. Yeah. the pre-option on Amazon in the show notes. And is there anything else you'd like to add before we say bye? No, I would, I would just tell folks that if, if conventional wisdom is telling you to go one way, it can always pay to question why that is. Yeah, I like that. I like that you didn't just say, you know, zag when everyone else is zigging. I, I like oh. that you said, question it. Don't just yeah, go well, in the opposite why? direction. Yeah, it's not always wrong. It's not yeah. always wrong, right? Sometimes it makes sense. But you should ask yourself why. Yeah, in yeah. whose interest is it to, to purvey that message? I would also say, really try and ask yourself what problem you're trying to solve and how much value that solved problem offers to your to your target customer. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for being on the show, Rand, and I look forward to catching up again soon. Yeah, Ash, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Productive Insights Podcast. You can find all the links in the show notes below this episode on ProductiveInsights.com. You can also ask questions in the comment section that Ash personally answers. How can Ash help you today? 